Hey everyone, I'm Jen Garrett and welcome to the Move the Ball podcast. On this podcast, we are going to talk about how to succeed in business and in life by putting winning strategies into practice to help you advance faster. So if you're looking to move forward and reach that next level of greatness, then you are in the right place. Now get ready. Let's suit up, show up and move the ball. Hey everyone, Jen Garrett here. It's so great to be back with you on another episode of Move the Ball. If you haven't already done so, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Now today, inside the huddle with us and ready to help us to move the ball is Alex Molden. Alex is a former defensive back who played college football at the University of Oregon and was inducted into the Oregon Hall of Fame in 2008. Alex was drafted 11th in the first round of the 96 NFL Draft by the New Orleans Saints, and he played eight seasons in the NFL with the Saints, with the San Diego Chargers, and the Detroit Lions. Currently, Alex is a speaker, trainer, and coach that helps companies to improve leadership and culture in the workplace. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jen. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. There's so many things I want to chat about with you today. So let's start off with you playing college ball at Oregon. Now, I just have to say that you had an amazing college career, all Pac-10 cornerback, key defensive player that led Oregon to -to back-to-back appearances in the Rose and Cotton Bowls in 94 and 95, and uh, essentially Oregon's Pac-10 conference championship, their first conference championship in 46 years. So first off, tell us what it was like for you being a part of those teams and playing in those bowl games. For those of my listeners who may not be aware of how much of an honor it is to play in the Rose Bowl, share a little bit about that experience with us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to start off, it was an amazing experience. And we started off the year one and two. And so for us, we didn't do a whole bunch of winning, not like Oregon is today. Like, for instance, my my freshman year, we went to a bowl. It was the Pulan Weed Eater Independence Bowl. <laughs> and, and that was the first time in like 20 years that University of Oregon went to a bowl. So that was my freshman year. And then two years later, all of a sudden we're in the Rose Bowl and we start off one and two. And so to start off the season, they were asking for Coach Brooks, Coach Rich Brooks. They was, you know, asking for his head on a platter. They wanted to fire him. You know, once we kind of came together, we had a players only meeting and that meeting changed the course of University of Oregon football history. It just for me, it solidified how important it is. How, how important culture is and having the correct leadership and what leadership really is. And leadership, I found out, is nothing more than influence. A lot of people, they put, they wrap character into leadership. And that is only one component. And so for me to actually see that and see it work for us, and it wasn't just the character of the leaders on the team, but it was also their ability. It was their communication. It was their knowledge. And there's a host of of others, but we just came together and everyone bought in and there was no more. It wasn't about me or it wasn't about one other player playing well and getting all the the recognition. We we decided as a team and said, if we put our team's goals, we put, you know, what we want to achieve, we put that first, then everybody will get the recognition. And, And we did that and we had a really good team. 
And we ran into a buzzsaw when we faced Penn State because they were ranked number one. They had one of the best offenses in the country, you know, but but it was it was definitely memorable experience to play in the Rose Bowl. You know, I will never forget that. And I shared, you know, that story, that season was magical. And and, and to do it uh, starting off one and two. Yeah, that's a great, great story. Thank you for sharing that. And talk to us about like the mental and physical preparation that you went through throughout the season and leading up to the bowl games. Yeah, I think for us, you know, when it comes to football and when you go through in the offseason, especially at the college level, where the offseason starts like in January, you start off with your offseason lifting program and then you start your conditioning and then you start your like early morning. Like for us, we have one day a week in the offseason. We call it commitment. It was commitment time and practices was at 530 in the morning. And so you go through all that and then you go through spring ball and, you know, you have a month of that and then you back to your lifting and, and uh, conditioning. And then you have a, a little break in July and then the season really starts. And so it's a long process. A lot of it is mundane. But if you start to break it down and say, like, hey, every day I'm going to get 0.2 percent better. And if I can have that type of mindset where I'm getting 2% or 0.2% better at watching film, at getting to know my, my opponent, I get to know my team members, I start to look at things a little bit differently. And if you can chop it up like that, instead of just looking at just the end product, but if you look at like, man, I'm, I'm going to get better at, at the details, then you're more likely than not to have success. And that really solidified, you know, my thought process when I made it to the NFL, because now it's a job and you're spending eight to 10 hours at the facilities. And then the games, you have 16 games. In my rookie year, I had 16 regular season games, but I had five preseason games. So I, I played two seasons in one my rookie year. And it takes a certain type of mindset and you have to you have to look ahead to where you want to be. And and I followed that both on the field and off the field, because if you start looking at just day to day and how little things, you know, they can become an issue or you can look at the process. And I started to appreciate the process and how that can develop me to be a better, a better football player and also a better individual. I like that you talk about continuous improvement, always looking how you can make these these changes to be better. When you were talking, you reminded me of, of I work with a lot of people in the corporate world, and I know you do too, and we talk about continuous improvement. And a lot of that is focused on how can we make process changes, right? Like how can we eliminate waste and lean Six Sigma? But what I don't find a lot of focus on is how can I improve myself, right? I and mean, in football, that's what you're focused on is how can I be a better athlete? How can I study the film better? But I, I find too often 
beyond the game and in the business world, people aren't always focusing on how can I improve versus how can we just improve processes, which is important too. But we also have to look within and how we can improve as individuals, as leaders and contributors to the business game, if you will, versus just it's always the process is broken, right? Or there's things that need to be improved there. It's both of those things. It's continuous improvements on both sides, the processes and how you interact culturally, but also who you are and what you bring to the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're you hit it right on the head. And here's the thing is people will value you more if you also pour into them, if you help them become better, not just as a as an employee, but helping them become better version of themselves. And not everybody knows how to do that. Yes. Agreed. So I want to go back to your college days just a a little bit. I mentioned before that you played defensive back, you played cornerback. My son played cornerback as well. I mean, I know your son Elijah plays cornerback. uh, So I have a special place in my heart for for people that play that position. Uh, Some people say that cornerback is one of the toughest positions to play in football. And it's a position that you excelled with finishing at Oregon. I want to share this with our listeners because it's very impressive. School record of 60 passes broken up and in the top 10 for the school's all-time interceptions list. And you were the standout cornerback and 1995 first-team All-American. Tell us what it was like playing cornerback, and what did you do to ensure that you were at the top of your game? Well, a corner is the hardest position in all of sports, in my opinion, okay? Mm-hmm. That's where the best athletes, that's where they live, okay? For me, it was uh, you had to understand that number one, the quarterback is not throwing you the ball. <laughs> That's number one. Their job is not to throw you the, the ball. And so what you have to do is like you have to use intuition, right? You have to use instincts and how you feel. And you can learn, you can get these from watching film. You can start to get educated on the person or the team that you're facing because, you know, they all run the same routes. They have different route combinations. There's different schemes and You know, you can get bogged down with that. But if you understand your role, if you understand your job, how effective you do your job can not only help you, but help your team, you help your defense. And so for me, when I started having a little bit of success in college and I started just kind of like simplifying, like boil it down. And I said, okay, if me and the other corner, if me and the other corner can take away the deep ball and not give up touchdown passes, we'll have a greater chance for success. I said, okay, so we're not going to give up the deep ball. And then we're going to also use our athleticism and our skill along with what we've been taught to help us. And, And so the belief of what the coach is telling us. And it started from practice, right? It started from watching the the tape and then picking up the skills and putting our own kind of signature on what we've been taught. And so, you know, for me, just kind of understanding the impact that I could have, like everybody wants to play linebacker. I want to be Lawrence Taylor. (laughs) When when I first started watching and picking up football and man, I was going to be 6'3", 245 and play outside linebacker. Well, my mom is 5'3", my dad is 5'7". <laughs> it wasn't in the cards for me to be an outside linebacker. But I can still have a huge amount of production playing the position that, that I was gifted in, in playing at cornerback. So just understand that we all have different gifts. 
and different tools. And it was like, man, okay, how do I use these tools to make me the best player that I can possibly be? And it just starts with the little things, with the practice. And it didn't start like in the offseason or, or excuse me, during the season in July. No, it starts in February and March and in, in April when nobody else is watching. There's no news media. There's no cameras out there. Nobody's watching that. And I, I figured early on that, man, this is where I can separate myself from uh, my competition. Sure. And what was your most memorable college game and why? Oh, man. <laughs> It's either the Rose Bowl. I mean, I dreamed of of playing in it. I've, I've dreamed of having Keith Jackson mention my name. And, and that all happened. But it wouldn't have happened if we wouldn't have beat Washington uh, in 1994. And when we played Washington, they were highly ranked. They had a, a great team. We were picking up uh, momentum. We beat USC a couple weeks prior. We beat them USC down in USC down in Southern California. That's the first time that had happened in like 20 years. And so we knew we had a team, you know, we, we knew we had some confidence rolling. And when we beat Washington on a last, I wouldn't say a last minute because we had the lead, but they were, they were driving. My good friend, Kenny Wheaton picked the ball off on the two yard line and took it 98 yards. And that sealed the deal. That was the most memorable and the most loudest stadium or game I've ever been involved in. Great story. So you mentioned the Independence Bowl earlier. You had a, a devastating injury that occurred then. Tell us about that knee injury and how did you bounce back from that? Oh, man. So so 1992, Independence Bowl, the second quarter of the game, I had a pick six. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> on national TV, on ESPN, a 19-year-old freshman had a pick six. Jennifer, I walked into the end zone. Imagine how that made me feel. I was on cloud nine. I was, you couldn't tell me anything. And then two series later, because of how I felt, I just had a great amount of success. And because of that success, I skipped an important detail. What it was, was it was a, it was a run play. Right? It was a run play and Wake Forest had the ball. I just had an interception. I'm feeling, I'm feeling, you know, something special, right? And that run play, what we've taught, the step that we've taught was to recognize if it's run or pass, if it's run, then your eyes go to the receiver, defeat the block. Now, either they can stock block you, meaning block you up high, or they can cut block you. They cut your legs out from underneath you and put and get you on the ground. Well, I skipped the step. I, I read run and I completely ignored the receiver and my eyes stayed on the running back and the receiver cut blocked me and I paid the ultimate price where um, I tore three crucial ligaments in my left knee. And for the longest time, I blamed that receiver. After months of rehab and when I finally you know, built up enough courage to watch the film and I was like, oh, my goodness. I skipped a step. I skipped a step. I should have, my eyes should have went to receiver, defeated the block, and then make the play. And I didn't do that. And from that point on, I was like, man, you know what? I'm never going to blame somebody else for my mistakes. Or I'm going to try never to do that. And it really was a, a self-reflecting moment where I was like, man, it was my fault. Now, why was it my fault? Well, uh, I let my emotions get the best of me. 
You know, and sometimes, you know, people think emotions, you think negative. Well, I just had a pick six, but I felt a certain way and I skipped the process. For that, though, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but I would not be the person or I wouldn't have the success on the field that I've had or, or that I did have without that injury and without that that whole process. But I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Sure, that's a great story. And I really wanted you to share it with our listeners because you know, we all have things that happen in our lives that are not fun. And oftentimes, unless we train ourselves to look differently, it's easy for us to blame somebody else, play the victim. It's not our fault that someone else did something to me, not what did I do to contribute to the situation or what could I have done to avoid the situation, right? And so I think it's important that we take uh, something I, I talk about a lot is I say, own your game. And it's really about taking the ownership. And when you have that ownership, no matter what happens, you look to see how did I contribute to whatever situation happened and where do I go from here? So I really appreciate you sharing that. And I really encourage people that are listening that as you continue on in life, when these things come in your path that are not fun, don't play the victim, hold yourself accountable and then figure out where you go from here instead of trying to say, it's not my fault. It wasn't me. You know, it's somebody else and try to blame that on, on some other circumstance or somebody else instead of taking that ownership. Absolutely. Ownership, I've learned and I use it when I'm when I'm coaching up my uh, my clients is when you can own it, you can use failure and failure is a pillar of leadership. It is an influencer, but you have to be able to own it. All right. And so I tell them all the time, like I use it when I'm talking and when I'm when I'm uh, teaching on leadership. It has to be foundational, not situational, meaning that if I own my failures here at home, at home, me and my wife, we have eight kids. If I can, there's a mistake where I used to run away from it or I used to sweep it underneath the rug. I own up to it. I said, that was on me. You know, that was on me, babe. I didn't do the laundry because of this, that, and the other, but still that's my fault. Now, if I, if I can use that and if the same situation was out in the community or, or on the baseball diamond or the football field, if I can take that and own it and say, you know, that was my fault, because it's easy to own success, right? We all do that. That's easy. So if I can own my failures and use it to make me a better person or help me help somebody else, man, I'm all for it. I really like that own your failure phrase. That, that's great because I think it is important. The other thing that you said that I really like was you talked about how you didn't wish this experience on anybody, but you are glad that you went through it. It's important for us to realize that the things that we go through in our lives are there to serve a purpose and to help grow us. I mean, I've had some things that uh, I know you and I were talking about my book before. I mean, there's some stories in there that I share, one in chapter 10 in particular, that was not a fun experience for me. It was three years in my career that I mean, there were many days I would go home crying because it was just a rough job. However, that job, I tell people I wouldn't trade for anything because I learned and I grew so much as a person and as a professional because of those experiences. So while these things may not be fun that we experience, there is a purpose and it really is there to better us and to help us grow. Absolutely. And, and, and by the way, I love your book. It's an easy read, but it has a ton of content and, uh, and a ton of, of value in it. So thank you for, for, for writing that. I know it took you a, you know, a while to be able to do that just because it's so, it's so well thought out. But 
Yeah, I, I believe our experiences, it shapes us. And if you're not experiencing life, you're not experiencing different relationships. And for me, like relationships and character, they mean so much to me and, and I value them and they help me uh, make decisions. You know, our experiences, man, good or bad, and mostly the bad can be able to, you know, if you can, if you can own it, it not only will help you become a better person, individual who you want to be, but your experiences can help others if you're able to, to share them. So let's talk about you transitioning into the NFL, your drafted first round. What was that like being a first round draft pick? And what did you think as you got ready for the NFL season about what this experience was going to be like for you? It was a it was a dream come true. You know, I remember watching my first my first draft. I think it was uh, the year that Steve Atwater uh, got drafted. I don't know if that was in the late 80s, but um, it was something I've always dreamed of being there, walking up on stage and, you know, with uh, the commissioner, Paul Tagliabue, um, you know, handing your jersey and you taking pictures. And it was just it was it was such a dream for me to actually do it. It was like, what? It was an amazing experience. It was just a whirlwind of emotion. I didn't know where I was going to go. You know, my agent, I, I wanted to go to the Broncos who had the 15th pick. But when I talked to Coach Shanahan and I told, you know, I'm from Colorado Springs. So it would have been a dream come true to play with John Elway. What? I, that, that would have been amazing. And, and when the coach said that, you know, Alex, you're not going to be there. That made me feel a certain way. And he told me that at the combine. But when I was drafted, it was an amazing uh, feeling. And then to, to go there my rookie year and understand, man, the expectations of being a first round draft pick. It's not like in college, where in college you had 95 to 100 players and they all stayed during training camp. Right. They all it was the same number. Nobody got cut. It was like 95 or 100 guys, and they was with you the whole season. Well, in the NFL, the, I remember vividly our first practice. In every line, you had four or five guys deep per position. And every week, it got smaller and smaller and smaller. And then by the final cut, we got there, you know, for our 53-man roster, there was only two people per line. And that was just that was just surreal to me to be like, whoa, the relationships that I made, you know, some of the, uh, you know, the guys that I've met, they're no longer here. I didn't get a chance to get their number or there wasn't no social media back then. It was just it was such a surreal moment for me and to understand like the business side of, uh, of playing professional football. Sure. And the NFL is a business at the end of the day. A lot of a lot of people who are fans, they see all this. Wow. It's you know, it's exciting. Right. To see your, your team playing during the season. The NFL at its core is a business. And so you're looking at who's going to be the best people that I can have on my team. And so you have to make sure that we talked about the continuous improvement, always looking how you can improve so that you can secure your spot and stay on that 53 man roster. Absolutely. So instead of me hanging around all the other rookies or the first and second year players that was, you know, all about the money, the cars, the women, all that. No, I surrounded myself with guys that was in the league for eight, nine, 10 plus years and figure out like, man, what made you 
last this long? Because I understand I ran a 4-3-2-40, you know, at the combine or you know, my pro day. I knew that when in 10 years from now, when I'm 32, I'm not going to be running no 4-3-2. So there has to be, and the same thing went for these older guys that, man, I know there's their ability is going to slip a little bit, your athletic ability. What caused them to still maintain and playing at a high level? Well, they have to take care of their body. You know, they they watch what they ate. They, they make sure they got the right amount of sleep. They make sure the stress off the field was low. They treated it like a profession. I mean, they took tons of notes. They had videotapes and like notepads full of, you know, how a receiver like Eric Allen, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, but he played 14 years with a couple of different teams. But he had notebooks of Jerry Rice of uh, Michael Irvin, of all the the wide receivers that he faced, he had a notebook of what they liked, what they didn't like, what gave them problems, the court, he had everything. And that just really blew my mind. Wow, that's that's great. Thanks for sharing. Because it is it is a business. And so you, that is your craft. And so to get better at it, you have to take notes, you have to study just like all of us that are not in the sport of football in the business world, you need to learn how do you get better at what it is that you are supposed to do so that you can, can continue to grow your career to advance, right to, to have that successful, uh, successful career. You ended your professional football career with uh, intercepting 12 passes uh, posting 252 tackles and 45 assists. So great, uh, great career. What moment did you learn the most from in your professional career? Uh, I would say I learned that. So when I first got cut, now there's a difference being released in my way of thinking. Before I got released from San Diego Chargers, 2001, I was, uh, I just signed a big contract with the San Diego Chargers. Uh, I ended up getting hurt. So I hurt my knee like the third game of the season. And I ended up, you know, taking the getting shot up and I got got surgery, but I still had to get, you know, shot up before every game. And I wasn't the same. I ended up getting put on IR because I tore my uh, messed up my other knee. And so I got put on IR. That was my first time ever going through that. The next year, 2002, the San Diego Chargers had the fifth pick. They had the fifth pick in the NFL draft. With that pick, they picked Quentin Jammer, cornerback out of University of Texas. And he was, and this dude was six foot, 200 pounds of twisted steel. He was a beast. And I knew there was no question that, man, they brought him in to take my job. The other corner was Ryan McNeil. He had he went to the Pro Bowl. He had like eight interceptions. And so there was no question in my mind that they brought this guy to take my job. But in doing so, and once I realized that, hey, I've really got to step my game up, I end up having, I, I kept him at bay because I played so well. I was uh, the most focused I've ever been. I treated every practice like it was the biggest game of my career. And when I did that, it took my game to a whole nother level. And I had the best year of my eight years in the NFL because I had this, this young, I call it young shark put in my fish tank and it pushed me to excel. And I think, you know, from that, I've um, expressed that, man, people, people sometimes need to have a young shark put in their fish tank to help them become a better person, a better influencer, a better uh, leader. And so not to be, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I felt a certain way. I was, I was scared. I was scared when he brought in this young rookie, but 
I had knowledge, I had experience, and I had re- the relationships that can help me become better. I think that's an important concept that you bring up. And we need people around us to challenge us, to push us to be better. The young sharks as you well. And, and also you talked about surrounding yourself with people who had been veterans in the league, learning from them as well. I think for us off the field, it's important for us to recognize that we need to surround ourselves with people that have more experience that we can learn from, but also people that will challenge us and push us to be better the young sharks. So thank you for sharing both of those those stories. So let's talk about your son, Elijah, for a minute. Plays cornerback for the University of Washington, right? He's a Husky. Uh, how do you yep. feel about that, first off? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those deals that people, you know, me, so so people around the country, they, they might not know, but Oregon Ducks, their rival is not the Oregon State Beavers. It's the Washington Huskies. For me to have the success that I had with Oregon, being a Hall of Famer, and then my son, who I I did the best job that I could to developing, make him the, the best person, number one, but then the best football player, and then putting these little seeds in his head that, hey, Oregon Ducks, I took him to so many games, so many spring games, took him on the field, and he still chose uh, University of Washington. My my kids, if they make their decision based off a number of different things, you know, for me, when I was 17 years old and I had colleges coming and telling me how good they are and, and all that, I based my decision off if I can play early, meaning as a freshman, and if we're going to play on TV, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's silly, right? And so, but my son was like, no, he wanted to make his based on a number of things. Education, number one, you know, they have a top 20 business school. They have a coach at the time and coach uh, Peterson, who everything he started his conversations on was built on character. That, that's number one for me, because I understand, you know, your skill, your ability, all that stuff is going to fade. It did for me. OK, football is not going to be there forever. So a lot of times people get wrapped up into their um, their ability, right? And they get wrapped up in what they do. It becomes a part of them. But when that disappears, right? When I stopped playing football, I know for me, I was lost. And so I never want anybody associated with me, especially my children, to be lost in what they do. I want them to know who they are. And so what Coach Peterson did, that was, that was number one for him. And then also why Elijah picked them, because the culture that they had, you know, to be honest, I wanted my son. Yes, I want him to go to Oregon, of course. But this dude is smart. He has a he has a 4.0. Magnificent in that spectrum of it. I want him to go to Stanford because I understand, man, Stanford, with that degree, you can go anywhere on planet Earth and it's going to open doors. But he didn't like the culture there. And so, you know, he based his decision based off the culture that they had at University of Washington. He based it off the character that the head coach had and, and what he presented every time we spoke with them. You know, I was like, hey, that's the best school for you, son. 
Because I think it's easy for people to get caught up in a shiny object, right? And chase something because it, it's, if it's Stanford, you know, or something else, because it's prominent, it's prestigious, it's exciting. But then we fail to look at, is this the right fit for me culturally, yes. right? These other things. So I think that's great that uh, very smart uh, young man you have there to really assess everything um, in it. So, so thank you for sharing that story. So let's talk about yeah. what you're doing now. You're speaking, you're training, you're coaching. Tell us what made you want to get into that and, and who do you focus most of your time with? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I got into this as I was a performance trainer when I worked with athletes, helped them with, with uh, but helped them become better at their sport. And so I did that. I found that love after I finished playing football. And I love like showing them where they are. Where do they want to go? If they want to lose weight or if they want to become faster, more athletic, whatever there's a certain process. And so I enjoyed doing that. Well, about a year and a half ago, uh, I ended up getting myself a leadership and personal development coach. It's been the most amazing thing that I've ever done, second to marrying my wife. How it shaped me become a better person, a better husband, a better father, a, a better individual. And it's really shaped how I make decisions and how I see things. I see things through a, through a different lens. And at the time, I've been, you know, I've been speaking on stages and kind of telling my story about teamwork and, and creating the, uh, the culture that you want in the workplace. Everybody loves to hear stories, right? We all love to, especially if it's NFL or, or, or football or sports in general. And I used to tell these stories. And, and at the end, I would have like, what are the takeaways? Well, once I got my coach and he started really boiling it down, man, there's certain principles that no matter where you are, people can be able to gain insight and knowledge that can help them. And so I understood that, man, I love helping people. At one time, it was, it was helping people become better athletes. And now it's helping them become better leaders. But more than that is better people. That's great. And so tell people how they can find out more about what you do. I know you have a website. Share with us your website. Yeah, absolutely. I have, um, I, like I said, I try to keep things easy as possible. So it's, uh, it's alexmolden.com. So A-L-E-X-M-O-L-D-E-N.com. And from there it has my speaking, but it also has a leadership course. It's called the Higher Achievers Academy. And uh, it's just, you know, it's a tab on there. You can click on that and it tells you more information. It's a six week course. I'm super proud of it. And I'm excited. It's something I've been wanting to do for quite some time now and and, uh, finally got it finished. So great. Yeah, we will put your website in the show notes, too. So I encourage everyone to go check out. Alex and his High Achievers Academy. I know there's some great insights in that program and lessons that will help you be a better leader. So please check that out. So what I want to do now is I want to transition to my two-minute drill, seven quick questions. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm ready. Okay. What's your favorite food? Oh, man. Fish tacos. Okay. Favorite movie? Favorite movie. Oh, man. Shoot. Scarface. Okay. What's your favorite sports team? Oh, man, I had to be my ducks. There you go. What is the best piece of advice you've gotten from a coach or a mentor? I would say have a plan. Have a plan. And, you know, for me, I had a a coach. His name was Willie Shaw. And how I live is assignment, alignment, and adjustment. And that's gave me success on and off the field. So having a plan. I like that. 
Okay, now let's flip it. What's the best piece of advice that you would give someone? Find out who you are. It, it took me a long time, you know, to find out who I was. Find out who you are. I really like that. What is one thing that people don't know about you? Oh, shoot. That I am a master at dominoes. Oh, okay. I can play dominoes with the best of them now. <laughs> I have not played dominoes in a long time. <laughs> wow, great. Um, if now, if you could be any superhero, who would you be and why? I think Superman. It was something that watching that show early on and the things that he can be able to do, you know, not just the laser vision or whatnot, but man, how he spoke with people. He, he was a person with high character. I, and I, I think all superheroes, you know, have some version or some some type of uh, character that is just at a higher level. Great. You are done with the drill. So the, the pressure is oh, off whoo. now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so any last thoughts for our listeners before we close the show? Yeah. Uh, leadership is one of those things that we all think that we know it. All right. We all think that we have it. Leadership is, is, is influence, and you can use influence in a variety of different ways, right? I use influence to parent. I use influence on how I walk out of this door. I use, I use that to create opportunities for me. I'm constantly uh, finding different ways how, man, having leadership, have somebody like turn a, a mirror, what you want to do, what you want to achieve in anything, Having somebody there that turn a mirror to you and see, are you achieving or are you really portraying yourself out there like like you want to? That's one thing that I, I you know I live by like every day when I wake up is how do I want to be perceived? I love that. That's great. Leadership is about influence and making sure that you are using your your message, your style to really influence, enable, empower people to do great things. So I love that. Well, thanks so much, Alex, for being on the show. We really appreciated you coming on and sharing uh, your story and just all these amazing nuggets of wisdom. Jennifer, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you and, and everything you're doing. Great. Well, again, I appreciate you, you being on and helping us to move the ball. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And we will talk with you on the next episode. Until next time, make sure that you tighten up that chin strap, lace up those cleats, and that you suit up you show up and you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball. To see more about what I'm up to and how I can help you to move the ball, check out my website at www.jenniferagarrett.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also join the Move the Ball Facebook group for even more content and to be a part of the Move the Ball movement.